Hi, this is Anthony Girassi, and you're listening to Talking Blues. So I understand you, at the age of four, you started playing the piano. That is correct. Um, so when I was about four, you know, every Sunday I'd go to church with my parents and, you know, I'd listen to the songs. And uh, at Christmas time around that time, uh, my grandmother bought me a really cheap ebony organ, one of those like, you know, toy organs. But, you know, they had sounds on them, you know, they had black and white keys. And if you think about church music, it's really blues. A lot of it's one, four, five. So, you know, I kind of picked out the simple melodies that were in some of the hymns. Did, did it come, I guess, obviously it came easy to you? Um, I came, I don't know if it was easy. It came natural. I don't know if the same or, or, the, or if they're both the same. But I was able to pick out the, the, the little melodies uh, from church. And I would hold maybe one note down in the lower register and, you know, so maybe the start of a chord, the root of a chord, and just put the melody to it. And then this led to your parents actually buying your piano not too long after. Yeah, about a year or so after that, uh, they bought me like a $25 upright that was a real junk piano. And they put it in the basement next to my mother's ironing machine. <laughs> if uh, anybody's old enough to remember their parents or their mother sitting somewhere with, you know, a sit-down iron machine, and she literally would lit literally iron everything. Your socks, your underwear was was uh, ironed, uh, but she'd sit there, and the piano was there, and I'd play, even at that age, I would play for hours uh, every night. And what would you play at that point? Well, I would just, um, once again, I, I didn't start my formal lessons um, at that time. I was just still playing, uh, you know, kind of what I heard, you know, I've always had an improvisational streak, so I was just probably making things up. I wish I had recordings of me playing when I was that uh, young. It was probably some interesting <laughs> stuff, you know. Um, so uh, soon after that, they did get me a piano uh, teacher, uh, Carmen Negri. He was a really good piano uh, teacher in the town I grew up in, just outside of New Haven, Connecticut. And after about a year of him coming down to my basement, you know, with my mother, uh, ironing next to him uh he said maybe you should get this kid a piano so uh, my mother went out to uh unbeknownst to me she went out to a um, a local music store uh and bought a kimball baby grand piano and wow. and it was like she paid four dollars a week on it and it was like the most beautiful thing i'd ever seen it was in our dining room you know we had a small little ranch house and i literally polished that thing every day when i came home from school and I would play it, you know, most parents have to, you know, hey, tell their kids, hey, it's time to practice piano. My my parents would say, hey, you got to stop playing that piano, you know. So, uh, and so what what are we playing here? Are we classical music or are we playing something else at this point? Well, when I started taking uh, lessons, I guess it would be more geared towards the classical, you know, you know, very, very easy things like, um, I mean, I still use them today when I teach at the conservatory where I teach today. You know, the John Thompson methods. There's some newer methods also that I use with my students. But, you know, I didn't really know anything about music per se at that time. I didn't know what was classical, what wasn't. I just, you know, really just wanted to play piano. And obviously you took to it, like you, you fell in love with the idea of playing piano very early. Yeah, I think I've had a one-track mind since I was born. And it's always <laughs> been about, you know, being a playing piano and then you know later on um, when I start you know being in my first rock bands when I was in like sixth or seventh grade it was that's all I that's all I wanted to do and that's you know 
I'll be approaching my 67th birthday uh, this year, and it's still all I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did you ever question that or doubt that? Never. Absolutely never. You know, all, all you know, all musicians have you know high and low points during their careers. I mean, there's there there were years um, when I didn't play that much and I had to do construction. You know, I work. I actually was a mason's tender for for a couple of years, which is probably the the worst job for a piano player. Um, <laughs> but you know, you know, one thing about musicians, we do what we have to do so we can do what we want to do. Right. So, at what point did you think? This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Well, I think it goes back to your uh, uh, your question a few minutes ago. I, I didn't really have a plan B. You know, my father w worked in a factory. He was a machinist. And of course, you know, like all dads probably around that time, they wanted their sons to follow maybe in their footsteps. So he actually had a job interview for me there that I never went to because I couldn't see myself being in a factory for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, like he did, but you know what he did was was good for him. You know, um, you know, I I thought about maybe uh, going to piano tuning school, and I, I said I'm not going to do that because I'm not that nimble with uh, with mechanics. I I have you know I don't have any MacGyver in me, you know, so I can't uh, do all that technical stuff. You know, it was basically just looking up black and white piano keys and you know reading music or writing music. You know, I still compose music almost every day. Um, and it's, it's, um, as I say, I really didn't have a plan B I, and I don't even know what a plan B would, would be even now in my life. You know, it's funny. Cause a lot of musicians say that and all musicians are motivated by the fact that they didn't want to do something and music was the thing that that was better, Yeah, <laughs> you know? And, and so that's the path that they chose. You played in rock bands. When did it switch to blues? Okay. So I was in rock bands, uh, from like, as I just said, uh, around sixth or seventh grade. Um, and we were playing like the standard things that were that were happening at the time. Um, you know, some Beatles, you know, Incense and Peppermints, you know. But there were, I was also listening to like, you know, the first Doors album that had like Backdoor Man on it. And that kind of caught my ear for some reason, you know. And then um, when I got into uh, to high school, when I was around 16 or so, it took... Uh, three towns to make one high school because lived in semi, it wasn't rural like farming communities, but it was pretty rural. So it took three towns to like, you know, have, you know, one high school. Right. And it was predomin predominantly, you know, white area um, of, uh, of the greater New Haven uh, locale. And uh, there was one African-American uh, uh, person there, his name was Ed Cherry. And we, we've had a mutual interest in music so his house was on the way home from where uh, uh, from where I lived, and I would stop at his house almost every day. And his parents would have a his parents had a really good record collection, and Ed was starting to um, collect records too. And literally at that time, I had just started collecting records. As I said, my parents still didn't have a record player. I had like an old crummy one in my bedroom. Um, my parents were like the most unmusical people you could imagine. <laughs> But they were very, always very supportive. As I said, my mother went out when I was young to buy me the piano. Um, they helped me buy my first Hammond B3, which I actually bought having a paper route. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I had a paper route and I paid for about three quarters of a brand can new. I, can I ask how, how much would a B3 back then, what would that have cost? 
Okay, and I know, I know, I know exactly what it is because I, I sort of, it was eleven hundred dollars with two one twenty two RV Leslies, and I think the reason it was so cheap is because at that time music stores, you know, the, the piano music stores. I'm not talking about like the places where you went to buy guitars and amplifiers or whatever, but there are actually like a lot of piano stores, which are, I think are very rare if any uh, these days. Yeah. And and you can imagine how much uh, room a Hammond B3 and a Leslie, you know, would would take up. And they just didn't literally didn't want them in their in their showrooms, you know. So. Um, they basically gave gave it away. So, you know, and my dad, as I said, my parents weren't musical, but they're always very supportive. My dad went out and bought like a 1969 Dodge van so I can get it to gigs and stuff. You know, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even have my driver's license then, you know. The, guy, the older guys in the van would have to come pick me up, get my father's van. We'd throw the B3 into, a, into the van and we'd go. But... Uh, <laughs> A B three is pretty heavy, right? It's pretty heavy, and and for years I used to put that thing in the van myself. You know. Wow. I guess young and dumb is what we can call it. <laughs> you know, but you know that's what we did. And then getting back to about musicians not having a plan B. Well, we just accept what we do. You know, you know, winter, spring, summer, or fall, we're out there. You know, touring. It doesn't matter if we're in a blizzard or if it's one hundred and two degrees in you know Phoenix. You know, the, the, the gear's got to get into the gig, you know, and you don't even think about it, you know. Not, you know, not all of us have roadies. I haven't, it's funny, the only road crew I ever had was in my high school band because, you know, the, <laughs> the, the guys would, you know, come with us, set everything up for beers and maybe a, a joint or something, you know, and you know, pick, pick up girls, you know, because they were with the band. Uh, but then when, when I got, like right now, when I can really use a roadie, I don't have one. <laughs> Um, what made you want the B three? Well, because I was uh, I was really listening to like a, a lot of bands, um, like uh, the Young Rascals. They were like uh, I really right. liked the Young Rascals, and I loved Felix Cavalier the way he um, he played organ and things. The way he just when he was time for him to solo, he soloed. But when it was you know him just you know because I was a small band, it was just a quartet. Um, they would just uh, play, and I got to see him live quite a bit. So I fell in love. Not, not only with the sound of the B3, but there's something very magical about the way it looks. It looks just very majestic. That's why it always upsets me when I see a lot of my friends that either have a B3 or a B3-like uh, instrument where they don't put the front on it and the guts are hanging out of it. I think that looks <laughs> awful. <laughs> you know, um, it's such, you... such a beautiful instrument. It's like, you know, you know, with uh, with, with keyboard players, um, with piano players, yeah. You know the piano, the digital pianos have come a long way, and it's um, and they they sound pretty good. You know, I have a relatively new uh, digital piano, and it sounds darn close to a a, a real uh, you know a real piano. But I can't fall in love with a digital piano the say like the way a guitar player might fall in love with his Les Paul or a Stratocaster. You know, I don't think there's that kind of love connection. You know, because we all basically want to be playing a Steinway Grand and a Heaven <laughs> B3 every night. But you know that's most that's probably not going to happen every night, you know. But but I wonder, you know, um, when you decide to play the B three, and I, I know that you had that little little organ in the very beginning, but yeah. it's a very different instrument from a piano, is it not? Like to the way you would approach playing it would be quite different. And that's absolutely that's absolutely true. And um, in my younger days, I would you know play you know when I first got the Hammond, I would play that for hours a day, then I'd also play my piano in our days. And you're absolutely right. There is a different, a different technique um, for playing the piano, you know, where you hit a note on the organ and basically, you know, 
it's going to sound the same. There's so many uh, different ways to hit the same note on a piano, lightly, heavily. Um, that's going to make the difference. It's almost like a violin player. A piano player is almost like a violin player with the subtleties that you can get out of uh, playing the keys, you know. You have the volume control with it with the Hammond, and that's that's a technique all in itself. And the, how you use the Leslie is a technique in itself. You don't need to have them go to fast or slow. All the draw bars. Um, I mean, I did a gig with uh, Booker T uh, two years ago up in uh, at the uh, Ottawa Blues Festival, and when he was done, I went over I went over to the Hammond. I took pictures of his all his settings. <laughs> 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 okay, so how how long does it take one to learn what how to use and manipulate those settings? Because it always amazes me when I watch somebody playing a B three and just the way the hands are moving all over the place and making adjustments all the way through. Is that something that comes to you very quickly, or is that years and years of testing and trial trial and error? I think it's a little bit of both. Because if uh, you know, the first thing you know you do when you get a Hammond B three is you know you got to. I don't even know how many draw bars are on each thing. Let's say 10. So you do each one individually and you can hear those tones just come right out. So obviously if you're playing in a louder, you know, rock session, you, you pull out most of the, most of the draw bars as far as they will go. Gives you that really full, big sound, but then you start pushing the draw bars back and that's where the subtleties come in. And uh, a lot of people have noted that I really use the draw bars really well. And I use the Leslie really well. If you hear some of the uh, recordings I've done with Ronnie Earl, uh, where I played a lot of organ, um, that's probably the most organ that I've played um, in a band, you know, the many, many years I spent with Ronnie Earl. And I play a lot of organ also uh, on, the, on the the Proven Ones records. Um, on my own personal records, I consider my, myself a piano player first, an organ player second. Um, and that's, um, and I do all my writing on, on, on my piano. I have a beautiful uh, 1896 Steinway B uh, piano in my, in my, um, my music room. I also have a Hammond uh, B2. Uh, Leslie, that's in mint condition. Um, so I have them to go back and forth with, but I do uh, almost all my writing uh, on, on, on the piano. So when you write a song that you wind up using the Hammond, yeah, you still write it on the piano? Um, no, there's actually a song that I hope to be going into the recording studio soon to do the follow-up of uh, uh, my latest record, Daydreams in Blue, that I actually wrote on, uh, on the organ. Um, just it's an instrumental, you know, so it's going right. to uh, be uh, the the organ is going to be uh, the focal point for that song. I always remember Greg Allman once telling me about how when he was first asked to join the Allman Brothers band, his brother took him to this mansion, and the only thing that was in the mansion was was this D three in the living room, and there was I think three joints. Um, on the keyboard, and he had the weekend to learn the instrument, <laughs> which which I thought was interesting. Well, it it is. Uh, yeah, that's this is a story similar like that in a, in Greg's book, which is a great book um, to read. Um, yeah, as I said, you have to like you know know the instrument before you can play the instrument. You know what I mean? If that makes any yeah. sense. You know, as I say, talking about the draw bars, the different sounds. So Greg Greg was a master of uh, of that he 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 learned the intricacies of how to play um 
I uh, toured with the Allman Brothers when I was with uh, Ronnie Earl on the broadcasters. We did about a half dozen shows with them in those big sheds that the Allman Brothers were playing at the time. And I got to talk to Greg a while, and um, he actually let me use his Hammond B3 on a, on a couple of gigs. And his wrote his organ uh, tech said, Greg never lets anybody use his organ. So I was honored that he let me uh, wow. use, his, use his Hammond uh, at the time. And then, you know, I didn't really talk to him about organ players. I don't like to be like the the kid just, you know, wanting to, you know, you know, be like a lap dog and, you know, question them. Because I know how these guys are and stuff. They've been on the road like forever. Last thing they want to know is, hey, what what sound, you know, how, you know, where did you have your drawbars on this particular song, you know? But but I wonder when people come to you, how do you, do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I'm actually, uh, I think I'm a nice guy. So I would probably tell them what I, what I, what I do and stuff, you know, you know, cause, cause I also come, come at it a little differently than let's say someone like Greg would. I've been teaching for a long time. I've been, I teach at a conservatory now. Um, I've always had private students. I taught um, at a college in, in, uh, in the state of Vermont where I taught uh, jazz piano. I taught the history of the blues, history of rock and roll. And I also taught a course on world music. So, you know, when people approach me to ask me a question, I think I can um, answer it more, more like a, as an academic uh, thing than just as, you know, a pain in the ass kid coming up and ask a question, you know. But but I always wonder with musicians, I mean, I think you, and I could be wrong, but I think musicians like talking about music and talking about instruments and, you know what I mean, at, at any level. Yeah. The, 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 there's, a, there's a reason, like, it seems funny, but I'm always amazed at how much the huge stars or people who've really made it still love their instrument, who still love talking about music, and it, it makes total sense because they're doing what they love to do. But so I, I want you know I always often think that you could probably talk to anybody about the Hammond B three, whoever plays it, and yeah. they'll be more than happy to share it with you. Absolutely. Well, put it this way: How many musicians do you know that ever retire? True. Literally, no, no, literally none of them. Uh, you know, right. My friend uh, Pintop Perkins, you know, uh, what is he like, 95, 96 when he when he passed on? I think he did a gig three weeks before he passed away, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I I hope I'm so lucky, you know, that you know, I'm, I'm, you know, what does retirement mean? But retirement for me means probably not teaching at a let's say a school or conservatory level like I'm doing now. Maybe have a few private students. But that doesn't mean I'm never going to ever stop performing or, or or playing with my friends, you know. What what does teaching do for you? What does it give you? Well, especially when I'm teaching, um, you know, blues piano, because you know most most of my students, to be honest with you, are younger are younger students. You know, you know, you know, taking lessons for a few years, you know, because you know maybe their parents want them, and I hope that I can inspire them to keep taking piano lessons. But it's it's a crazy world these days, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, but I do have some students that take lessons with me because they want to learn more about blues piano or a little bit more about jazz piano. And um, if I can pass pass um, some of my keyboard or musical knowledge on, well, I think that's that's something that any musician should do, you know, to try to teach either a younger generation or even people that are you know like around our own age, whether they have aspirations of being professional musicians or not. You know, some of my best friends um, that that are really, really great musicians, they all like, you know, have, you know, they, that's not their vocation or their professional uh, life or career, but they're 
basically just as passionate about it as I am. They might do it on the weekends, you know, when things get back to normal, let's say. But, you know, they're, they're just as vested in listening to the music and, you know, you know, promoting the music as someone like me who basically does it 100%. Let's go back to you discovering the blues or getting more into the blues. So you sure. said that you, you were in a rock band and you tended to lean towards more blues-type music. But how did sure. it wind up that you, you got heavily into the blues? So I, once again, I was talking about my friend Ed Cherry, and he's a really interesting cat. Um, i say he was one of the only African-Americans at, at our school. And we found out that, you know, we were both, I guess we'll call ourselves musicians. You know, we, we just liked to play. We didn't even know we were musicians at the time. Right. So we, but we played. Uh, he was a guitar player. So I used to go to his house uh, almost every day after school. And his parents uh, had a really uh, big uh, record collection. And Ed was starting to collect. So they'd have everything um, from, like, you know, Count Basie and Duke Ellington um, to some Muddy Waters and B.B. King, and Ed would have, like, some Funkadelics. So we'd listen to a whole bunch of stuff, you know. And uh, one day he uh, played uh, Jimmy Rogers' uh, Chicago Bound record uh, on chess, and that just, like, floored me. There was something about that recording that just made perfect sense to me. It was just as perfect as any, like, you know, Bach or Beethoven piece of music I've ever heard. It was like perfect. The ensemble playing was great. With Jimmy Rogers, Muddy Muddy Waters, uh, Big Walter Horton, uh, Little Walter, you know, and you know, you know, just goes on and on. Jimmy singing and, and, and playing guitar. And I said, Hey, Ed, can I borrow that record? You know, at that time everybody let everybody else borrow their records. No one cared, you know. So I took <laughs> right. that home and I probably you know listened to it a hundred times over over the course of a few days. And I just thought to myself at the time, this is what I really, really, the kind of music I really want to be playing for the rest of my life, you know? You know, and you, when you're 16, you know, the rest of your life, who knows what that even means, you know? So um, I started, you know, playing, you know, more songs off that record, like Sloppy Drunk and Ludella and things like that. Um, and then, like, literally, like, four or five years later, Jimmy Rogers was my roommate on the road. Um, I, did, I did two records with Big Walter Horton. Um, I got to sit in with Muddy Waters a few times, you know, um, Jimmy would stay at my house uh, when we toured in the Northeast, uh, uh, Pine Top Perkins, you know, he's not on that record, obviously, it's Otis Fan, who's, you know, probably one of my favorite piano players, um, uh, Pine Top would also stay at my house and uh, when he was touring around and I'd, you know, watch Pine Top and he'd teach me a little bit, even without even literally teaching me, I would just like he'd be watching him and listening to what he was playing. He was at my house all day. Um, he would like literally, I, I had two pianos at my house at that time. <laughs> I had one in the kitchen, believe it or not. <laughs> I had a beautiful old Steinway uh, upright grand piano in my kitchen. And I had like uh, another piano in my living. So in the morning, Pine Top would wake up, I'd make him a cup of coffee, cook him some eggs and bacon, make him happy. And he'd be playing while I'm cooking the eggs and everything. Then he'd move to the kitchen, uh, move to the living room, and he would just sit down and play. And I got some really cute tapes of him and my son, who was about four years old at the time. They're singing uh, train songs together and... Uh, it's, it's really cute. I actually just found that tape uh, a few weeks ago and figure out how to get it from cassette to uh, MP3 or something. But, uh, you know, so all these people that, that I that, you know, when, when you're first learning about blues or maybe any type of music um, and, you, and you, you're reading about B.B. King or you're reading about Muddy Waters, 
they're almost not not human. You think of them almost like gods on Mount Olympus, you know, that maybe they don't exist. They're just gods, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, but then in New Haven, a lot of the bands would come through. Buddy would come through all the time. And I got to see him with a lot of different um, players. I saw him with uh, Hollywood Fats. I saw him with, you know, um, Sammy Lawhorn and uh, Luther Tucker. Um, so a lot of different incarnations of the band. I never got to see him with Span, unfortunately. But it was always the same rhythm section of, you know, Pine Top, Willie Big Eye Smith. And um, uh, on bass was, uh, I forget who was on bass, but he was with Muddy for a long time. And uh, so I got to see all these bands. I, Ed Cherry, who I was talking about, we went to see Hound Dog Taylor, who played in a dorm room at Yale University. You know, in the, in the common area, you know, it was like right. 40, 40 people there. Hound Dog uh, uh, and Brewer Phillips and maybe Ted Harvey on drum. And Ted Harvey actually was our drummer in the Blue Tones for a while um, at, at one point. So um, we got, you know, Ed and I would go see shows down in New York City. Uh, but to get back to Ed, who's just a phenomenal guitar player, he went on to be uh, Dizzy Gillespie's guitar player. Wow. Quite a, quite a few years up till Dizzy passed away, and uh, Ed lives in New York City now, and um, still is still playing. Um, obviously, uh, jazz. He's into the uh, organ trio, so a lot of his records are organ trio, you know, featuring himself. Uh, but he's he was because of him, it was a big influence on the type of music uh, that you know, basically, I've dedicated my life to. So, how does a kid who takes home that Jimmy Rogers album? one day and becomes obsessed with the blues, wind up a few years later having Pine Top sleeping in his house. <laughs> uh, I guess it's a little bit of luck. It's a little bit of the um, the people I was um, hanging hanging out with. You know, it was the very, very early days of uh, Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones when Ronnie Earl was still our guitar player. And um, we would just bring... And I don't even know how this worked, but Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie always had like a little magical touch about him and still does. You know, yeah. I love him. I love him dearly. Um, and we would call, we would just call up clubs like in DC or Virginia or New York city. Ronnie would call him up. He'd hold, hold the phone up. We'd play a song. And that was, that was like our press package, you know, and then we would get a gig. Try doing that today. You wouldn't even get through. <laughs> But he also had phone numbers, um, and I don't even know how Ronnie got the phone numbers. He would call like JB Hutto up and say, "You want to come out for a couple of weeks?" JB would. Uh, they mostly, sometimes they flew, sometimes they took the train from Chicago, and we'd uh, JB Hutto would come and stay with us for a couple of weeks, you know, and we'd play with JB Hutto. We would get, um, you know, Jimmy Rogers would come and stay with us. One of the scariest and best was uh we had otis rush come and stay with us for a couple of weeks you know and when i tell you what when otis rush was on he was like probably the heaviest thing i've ever heard on stage mm-hmm. when he was when he was feeling it and to be honest with you he probably wasn't feeling it all the time but when but when he was on that was like some of the most incredible music i've ever experienced on stage i know it's not fair to generalize but if i was to ask you from from having these people on pedestal to becoming friends. What's the greatest thing you've learned from the old blues masters? I think just, you know, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm at that age where I was able to play with a lot of the older uh, blues guys, you know, mostly from, from Chicago. And um, I remember uh, playing with um, 
doing uh, Super Harps too, and it was, and Snooky Pryor was coming into the studio, and Snooky came in. You know, he, this is like a you know a weekday in in Portland in Portland, Maine, recording. You know, we're recording um, um, the the Super Harps two record, and and Snooky comes in. He's dressed like he's going to church. He's got on like a three piece suit. He's got his hat on. He's got his tie on. Everything is perfect. And, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves. Hi, Snooky. I'm a piano player. I'm going to, you know, be backing you up today. And I could just see what he was saying. He goes, oh, God, just another bunch of white kids want to play blues or something, you know. So he sits down and we uh, we ran through the song. We recorded it. And after we recorded it, he had, he had the biggest smile I've ever seen anybody have. And he said, that's the way it's supposed to be played. And to me, that's, you know, you can't, you know, that's like the best thing ever and stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. when I was playing with um, Robert Jr. Lockwood, um, you know, because Robert Jr. Uh, Lockwood thought of himself almost as a jazz guitar player. If you talk to him, especially later on in his career, he considered himself a, a jazz player as much as a, as a blues player. <laughs> and he told me one time I did a gig with him. It was kind of funny. He goes, man, you know all them in-between chords, don't you? <laughs> I don't didn't know what to what to make of it, but that was like him giving me a compliment that because if you if you do listen to my playing, it's not just standard blues. I may add like you know some tensions like the ninth or something like that in places where a a blues piano player maybe wouldn't do it. And I think that's what he was getting on. But I don't want it to sound like too crazy, like adding you know sharp elevens or anything like that. You know, but you know I, I like I like the the different the uh the melding of let's say blues piano players like you know um junior Mance, memphis slim who i you know who i who, who i love and um uh, the way that they can meld a little bit of jazz in their in their blues playing you know and i once did a gig with uh with memphis slim the blue tones were going to back them up so you know we did like a little 15 20 minute set and then of course you know ladies and gentlemen you know memphis slim so i'm getting off the piano you know, obviously Memphis Slim's going to play piano and sing, and he was a big man. His 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 um his hands looked like bear paws. They were like <laughs> they were huge, and he put his he put his big hand on my shoulder. And he said, "You play the piano, and I'm going to sing." And I thought to myself, "Oh my god!" So uh, I don't I was I'm, I'm, I was probably in shock. I have no idea what song it was, what key it was, but I played one song while Memphis sang. You know, the band backed him up. So that was, you know, because he heard me playing, he, you know, thought to himself, "Hey, maybe this kid's okay," you know. So I, um, you know, I got to play a song while Memphis um, was uh, was singing, you know. So it's those kind of experiences, you know, that okay, you could chalk it up to a little bit of luck, but you also have to be really prepared, and that's what I kind of tell my stu- all my students to get back to that. So in my earlier days, you know, as I say, I backed up a lot of people. I was Chuck Berry's piano player when he came out uh, to the Northeast. And in you know those days, I would I had every every Chuck Berry record that I had, I would put on my turntable. You know how the records used to drop back then. So yep. I do you know one LP, two, two LPs, three. I think I did three at a time. Then I turn them over because one thing I, for me personally, I never want to be stumped on stage. You know, because playing with Chuck Berry is very different than playing with Otis Rush. Playing with Otis Rush is very different than playing with with Big Walter Horton. Yeah, are there three chords involved? Yeah, but it's like what they bring to those three chords, and it, and if you're fortunate enough to be able to play with those people, you have to be prepared, you know, because someone like Otis Rush, 
his his songs are songs. They're really different. It's not just okay, shuffle and E, slow blues and G. They're real songs, you know. So I really wanted to be prepared, and I've always been really prepared to the best of my ability whenever I played with any of uh, those people. And I and still today, whether it be my own band or um, you know when we're when we're, we're doing uh, gigs with the, the proven ones. Um, or if someone invites me to play with them, which hasn't happened in a while, but uh, you know, I always want to be prepared. I'm on, let's say, Taz Cruz's new record that came out this year or last year, and you know, he sent me all the MP3s and you know, kind of chicken scratched uh, uh, lead sheets. But you know, when I went into the studio, I was as prepared as I could possibly be, you know, to be on to be on his record because I respect. Um, the musician and and it, and it, and I also like I'm humbled that people would ask me to be on their recording or to be in their band or on this tour. You know, um, you know the great um, Walter Trout is on my, my on my new recording, and I just talked to him uh, the other day. He's actually in Denmark. Uh, his wife uh, is Danish. They live in Denmark, and that's where he's been like uh, uh, staying for uh, during during COVID. But he's just such a nice guy, you know, playing, you know, I don't I've done any gigs with him, but I've sat in with him uh, on a, a couple of occasions. And he's just such a nice guy. And I talked to him about being on my uh, new record that I'm just starting to get together. And he uh, wrote me back. He goes, man, I can't wait to play on the song that I, that I sent him. You know, so things like that, having someone like Walter Trout, who many people would say, Walter Trout, he doesn't sound like someone you would, you would like, you know. What I love about Walter Trout is he's very sincere at what he does. Every note that he plays, every note that he sings, he means it. He means it with a lot of soul. At this point, being being when you when you're playing with a lot of the blues greats, are you still are you still taking lessons? Are you still doing classical music at all, or are you not doing that anymore at that point? Well, I st- I when I play piano, I, st- I I still play a little classical music, you know. But that's for for me. I know I'm not going to play Carnegie Hall, you know, doing that, you know. Um, I used to. <laughs> Back up a little bit. I used to actually one of my jobs I had was making harpsichords. Really? Yeah. And so, and you should hear boogie woogie on harpsichord. It's freaking unbelievable. <laughs> and I would be playing like regular, like you know, blues on a harpsichord because uh, I got a pretty heavy hand. And the guy that that um, owned the company, he was an older guy, and he's kind of crazy. But before we sent them out, he'd he'd have the uh, uh, the harpsichords put in his office and a lot of the people that worked there were also musicians but they were basically classical musicians you know so they'd play and they got kind of a light touch then he'd have me come and bang on it literally for like a day you know and i'd break strings and you know quills would be flying off the thing you know but he wanted to make sure that if someone had a heavy hand like me that they wouldn't be broken so i literally the term you know uh, broken in, you know, I literally broke the harpsichords in, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> you know, cause I would pop strings and things like that. Um, but but it's an well, interesting sound. I was, I was curious about the classical training that some of the classical training that you had and how that might influence the way you play the blues or jazz or does it? I often, I often think about, you know, the way I, I've been brought up um, playing and how some of the say like Pine Top was brought up playing. So let's start with uh, with what I with me first. I've always been into like practicing piano. Um, 
So that means, let's say, learning all my scales, all my major scales, all my minor scales. Uh, any of my piano playing friends out there know about the, the Hannon books, things like that. I, I'd go through all of them. And believe it or not, I still do. Um, I still play light classical once in a while because that's what some of my students are doing. And I want to make sure I know the tunes uh, at least as good as they, they're playing them, <laughs> you know. Um, and then, but you think about someone like uh, Pine Top or someone like uh, Otis Spann, Memphis Slim. They weren't schooled musicians. They just played because they played, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I have my master's degree in, in music, you know. You know, n- none of those musicians back then. I mean, I don't, I don't even think Pine Top or Muddy Waters got through grade school. Um, I have a... Um, uh, an autographed copy of one of Muddy Waters' records uh, from one of the gigs uh, that I opened for him and was able to sit in with him. And, um, I mean, it took him like five minutes to write my first name. You know, those, they, they, they were pretty much, you know, they grew up, they, they grew up you know, on farms and stuff. How, how they got so great is, to me, is almost like divine intervention, you know? Right. When did you decide that you wanted to go to school for your master's? How did that decision come about? Sure. Well, I, after high school, I took about a year off and I uh, went to like a community college and I exhausted all the music credits there my first semester. And uh, I said, OK, I'm going to go. I had a few friends that went to the Berkeley College of Music. So I said, I'm going to apply. So I got in I got probably like what they call a wait list or last minute for like this, the fall semester. And they got in touch with me like the middle of August and I wasn't prepared. So I said, hey, can I come in like, you know, you know, the second semester in January? So they said, yeah. So they put me off. So I went to I started, you know, going to Berkeley College of Music and I went there for like three years, a little over three years. I was pretty close to graduating. And um, but while living in Boston, I started playing with some of the blues people. And um, there was a great club there called the Speakeasy, uh, which is a blues club. Literally seven nights a week, they have blues. And um and I'd go there every once in a while uh, to hear bands. And uh, uh, Mae Kramer, who was a, a great DJ on a, on a public radio here in, in Boston, she had a show every Friday and Saturday. She would announce who was playing at the Speakeasy and, and, and other blues bands um, that were playing in the Boston area. So uh, I called up the Speakeasy one night, and I uh, like a Friday afternoon, and I went like, like I swear to God, I still remember it. I went in a lower voice. I said, uh, hi, I'd like to talk to uh, someone in the band. Is anybody from the band there? And they went, yeah, sure, just a minute. So someone from the band answered, yeah, what can I do for you? I go, uh, my name's uh, Anthony, and I'm a blues piano player. I just got into town, and I don't know if I can come sit in with you. So he said, do you have a microphone? <laughs> I said, yeah. Okay, so that was my calling card. I had a microphone that I could stick in the old upright piano in the corner. So uh, I played with them all night. They were like they were like a real blues band, you know. They were a long-haired blues band from New Hampshire, and they were great guys. They, you know, so I I started going up, uh, taking the bus from Boston to New Hampshire to go play with them every weekend. And then they got the gig opening up for Muddy Waters for a whole week. There were two preeminent uh, clubs in the Boston area: um, the Jazz Workshop and Paul's Mall. Obviously, the Jazz Workshop had more jazz there. Um, and the, Paul's Mall had all sorts of acts, everybody from Joan Baez, Martin Mall, uh, and a lot of blues acts. So um, we got the gig opening up for money for like uh, six days in a row. So obviously, um, everybody in the blues community came from hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, 
to see Muddy, you know. And it was a kind of a small club, so you know, you know, Muddy in the band would would would, would uh, mingle with everybody. Bob Margolin was in the band, and Jerry Portnoy, you know, uh, Calvin Fuzz Jones on bass, Willie. Uh, Willie Smith and, and Pintava, obviously. So I got to, that's the first time I got to meet all those guys. And um, and it was also the first time I ever got to sit in with uh, Muddy Waters. And one of the scariest 15 minutes of my life, probably. You know, <laughs> yeah, having a, a Muddy, uh, Muddy, Muddy uh, invite me up to, to uh, play a couple of songs with him. I'll never forget that. So obviously, everybody in the Boston blues community was there almost every night and people from outside of Boston would, would make uh, the trip to, to Mecca, so to speak, you know, to go see, uh, come see Muddy. Uh, and, and, and Muddy was great. And one of the nights we were there, and the book just came out, I think, last year, um, Mrs. Anderson, she had like the only photograph of unknown photograph of Robert Johnson. She was his stepsister. And uh, there's a new book out there. And I, I, this is no kidding. I was sitting right next to Muddy when when she when she showed him that picture and Muddy got, literally like leaped off his chair and said, "That's him! That's him!" And I like got goosebumps and like the whole you know this isn't like a, like a big green room in the back of the club, and the whole the whole place went quiet because they were huh. so freaked out that Muddy's like confirming like that's a picture of Robert Johnson that no one's ever seen in their life. You know what I mean? It's crazy that it's taken this long to get it out to the public. I, I'm surprised too, to be honest with you. You know, that was back in the, geez, had to be the uh, early '80s or something. That uh, about the story that I just told. You know. Wow. Okay, so getting back to that gig. So obviously, everybody in the blues community uh, was there, um, and so a few people um, started calling me. And when Bob Margol and Jerry Portney were living in the Boston area. So when they weren't on the road with uh, with Muddy, they would hold these weekly jam sessions, if you want to call them that, at a, at, a, at the Great Scots in Boston. And they would they called me and asked if I'd come and play. And you know there were some pretty badass piano players in Boston at that time. You had Ron Levy, who was with BB King, living in Boston. You had the great late Dave Maxwell, who was living mm-hmm. in Boston, and 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 a few others. And so like I got mixed in with all those guys and stuff, you know. And um, just by being around him, you learn a lot, you know. And so we did that almost every week. Uh, as I say, that uh, Bob and Jerry weren't on the road with Muddy. And um, Mudcat Ward, uh, bass player for, for the Blue Tones, uh, was very good friends with Ronnie Earl. Ronnie Earl was still with John Nicholas and the Rhythm Rockers. And John Nicholas was going to go uh, with a sleep at the wheel from Texas. And Ronnie wanted to start a band. And uh, Ronnie goes, I really want a piano player in, in my band. Do you know anybody? And Mudcat said, um, yeah, I saw this guy open up for Muddy Waters. He was pretty good. So f- somehow they got my number, you know, and uh, they called me and they came over to my house. Uh, I was living in Newton, Massachusetts at the time. And the story goes, they came out to my back porch and I was writing a sonata for one of my classes. <laughs> and, and if you know Ronnie Earl, he, he just comes in. I have no idea who he is at all. He goes, you're going to be my piano player. <laughs> I said, okay. I quit school the next day. My parents were like horrified and stuff. And uh, we went, um, and the Blue Tone, that's how the Blue Tone started, you know, uh, the three of us. Then we uh, we got Sugar Ray and uh, Norcia and, and Neil Gubin. And, you know, literally within a month, we were playing four or five nights a week, you know. We had a steady gig every Sunday at the Speakeasy that I talked about a little bit before. 
And so, and then we had a gig every Monday night uh, at this place uh, in Providence, Rhode Island, the Met Cafe. So if you have a steady Sunday and a Monday night gig, that's like pretty good. It's kind of easy to fill in the rest, you know? And I'm, and I feel bad that those gigs, those kind of gigs aren't there anymore for us, you know? Um, that, that was a band, right? It is, it isn't Sugar Ray and bunch of sidemen like the blue tones have always been a band or a unit correct that's correct even for, even when ronnie was in the band you know with sugar and the blue tones we the only recording we did back then uh was 145 and it, it, uh the 45 says featuring little ronnie that's how he, he went on uh went by before he turned into uh you know R ronnie earl um but if you if you notice the um the second run here on the broadcaster's record, uh, they, uh, it's really a Blue Tones record. You know, it's just the five of us with Ronnie. Because as much as he loved being in Roomful and that big band sound, I think he really missed that, you know, that his real calling of being in like a Chicago-style blues band, you know. How long has the band Blue Tones been together? Well, since... Uh, Probably close close to forty years, maybe a little 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 um, little over that. You know, um, I was like in it for like thirty years. Then for like maybe the last ten years, I've done shows with them. I'm on the, the Sugar Rain and Blue Tones latest recording, uh, "Too Far from the Bar," that features um, Charlie Beatty on it. Um, but I haven't really toured with Sugar in a few years because I've been really concentrating on, on my career and also uh, doing a, you know, a few shows a year with the Proven Ones. Okay, so tell me about you deciding to concentrate on your career. Like, at what point do you say, you know what, I'm going to release? I, I, I know that you've been releasing not solo albums, but your albums mm -hmm. for a while, but how did that decision come about? Well, I... I think almost like uh, if you think the way George the way George Harrison was in the Beatles and stuff, you know, he wasn't able to say everything he wanted to say on a Beatles record. You know, maybe they let him do one song, you know, either sing a song or, or write a song uh, for a Beatle album. But it was basically like, you know, you know, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney doing the majority of songwriting and, and singing. Um, I just wanted to be able to do more. Um, the Blue Tones, you know, are in my DNA. I, I love those guys. Sugar Ray called me up this afternoon. I'd go do a gig with him tomorrow if he wanted me to. Um, and I love all the guys in, in that band. Having said that, I think I have, I, I like to stretch the boundaries of blues a little bit more either, you know, and through my songwriting all on all my recordings, you know, from uh, 50 shades of blue, why did you have to go? And uh, my, my, my new uh, my new record, Daydreams in Blue, I wrote all the songs except for like one or two of them. So right there, that's like 30 songs that I've written that I never would have been able to do having just stayed, uh, in, you know, with uh, Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones. So my songwriting is just as important to me as uh, as my piano playing or organ playing uh, is, you know, I feel myself just as much a songwriter as a uh, instrumentalist. Was that a risky thing at all? Probably, yeah. Because, you know, Sugar Ray has such a built-in name. And no matter who Sugar Ray has, I know he's been going through a few different guitar players over the last, uh, mm -hmm. uh, since Mike Welch left. You know, Mike, me and Mike Welch and I were in the band for like about 14 years together. And when Mike left to uh, um, do the thing with Mike Ledbetter, um, 
he started, you know, a few different guitar players. Troy Gagne is a guy who lives in the Providence era. Tom Ferraro has been playing. Um, and then Charlie was going to probably going to be the guitar player, but unfortunately he passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, I left around about the same time Mike, Mike did, maybe even a little bit before, because I wanted to start doing that. I was still in the blue tones when uh, Fifty Shades of Blue came out. And it, and, it, and, it, and it was hard trying to, you know, trying to book myself as a band while still being in a band, you know. I didn't want right. to take any, anything away from the Blue Tones, but yet I still wanted to do, you know, my own thing, so to speak, you know. And that, and that, was, that was kind of hard. What did you learn from that experience? I learned that it's good to have friends, you know, that'll, that'll come and play with you. Everybody I asked to come do a gig with me, it, Within within a half a second, they all they all said yes. Whoever I wanted to uh, be on any particular song in the recording studio, they said yes within a half a second. No one no one no one said no. Um, it's only on my last record, Daydreams and Blue, where where I really felt like I had more of a a core band instead of just inviting my you know my great friends that I know and stuff to be on the record because I want to be able to take it on the road um, with the people you know that make the record that make the record uh, with me. Whereas when I did 50 Shades of Blue, I had like, you know, nine or 10 people on the recording and same thing with uh, my uh, other uh, CD. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, I love Sugar Ray Rayford, but I doubt very much he's going to go on the road with me, you know, and he sings a few songs like that, you know. So I needed to have more of a, of a band and that's what I really concentrated on uh, with Daydreams in Blue. It must have been nice to when when last few albums have gotten quite a bit of recognition and nomination for the Blues Music Awards and things. Yeah. So it must have been. I mean, it must be a great feeling to do. You know, take take a risk and go out on your own, and then to yeah. be recognized for that. Well, you know, my last. You know, the BMAs that to come out for for this year, which uh, Daydreams and Blue would be. Um, hopefully will be in there somewhere but my last two records both both of those records um were nominated for album of the year traditional album of the year and a song of the year from each one of them you know and that i haven't seen any blues artists at all that that's had consecutive nominations in, in those three categories you know so that means a lot to me it means someone's listening someone's actually you know paying attention to the way i write as i say it's all they're all original it's an all original material. Uh, I'm not doing, you know, remakes of someone else's material, which is nothing wrong with, with that. But I, you know, I, as I say, I'm a songwriter. So all of my albums have um, all my original compositions uh, on them. So to be um, acknowledged for that means a lot to me. And to be uh, nominated for the Pine Top Perkins uh, Piano Award the last five years in a row really means a lot to me. Only because, yeah, sure, it's great to be recognized, but because of... Um, being a friend with Pine Top and knowing him, as I said before, having him stay at my house, and I, you know, and I'm also on the board of directors uh, for the Pine Top Perkins Foundation, and I taught at the Pine Top uh, Perkins Workshop for three years in a row. Also, it's amazing how it just kind of comes around, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I know that this is a really weird and difficult time for musicians. I at this point, are you still teaching? I am, but it's all it's all remote. Uh, I'm doing all all my lessons are FaceTime. FaceTime lessons with my students and I can tell like especially my younger students they're they're getting tired of it I'm, I'm surprised they're still taking lessons to be honest with you you know I can't imagine having a young kid right now and 
you know, try to have them do all their work, you know, through Zoom or Facebook or, you know, FaceTime rather, um, you know, six, six, five, six hours a day. Luckily, all my kids are all grown up. They're, you know, all, you know, past college age. Um, but um, it, it's got to be tough. And with with musicians, you know, none of us have played a gig. Literally, it's going on about a year now. I see some of my friends starting to play, especially like in Florida. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still not ready. You know, in the Boston area, my wife's a nurse practitioner, so she gets she gets the, the numbers daily. It's, right. it's, it's not good here. And then another thing to think about is, uh, and I've, I've talked to a lot of my friends about this, we're almost, you know, you think about athletes, you know, conditioning themselves. They don't all of a sudden, you know, on day one, you know, play a football game or, or day one go out and uh, run a marathon. We got to kind of get used to being on the road again. We also have to make sure that the people that love our music come out, you know, are they going to stay out till midnight again anymore? I don't know. I'm, re I'm really, really worried about um, wh where this is, is going in the future, especially the band's. You know, I'm really fortunate to be booked uh, by Intrepid Artists International. And a lot of their artists before COVID were on the road constantly. You know, I, I wasn't a road dog per se, um, but I love being on the road, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, but the guys are and the bands that were were um, road dogs, so to speak. And I, and I say that in, in, with the highest respect. I don't know if that's going to be there um, or how long it's going to take to get back. Because number one, a lot of the clubs that supported the acts Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, even though they didn't pay a lot, they were there. They were there at least to break even for the night to keep you going for the gigs on the weekends that paid much better and things like that. You know, uh, even in the Boston area, there's at least a half dozen clubs that have closed um, in, in the in the last year that supported um, you know touring acts that would come through. And as I say, I know they weren't making great money on a on a Tuesday or Wednesday night in Boston, but it was enough money to keep them going, you know. How do you think it has changed you as a musician, not not considering the fact that the, the, the gigs are not there and you're not on the road or you're not doing festivals, but just as, as a pure musician that practices or whatever, has your approach to music changed at all during this time? That's a, that's a great question. And I've, I've thought about asking some of my friends something very similar. I think I have a deep, deeper respect for what it takes to be a musician. You know, you know, like I said be, before, you know, musicians sometimes are living the high life, sometimes they're living the low life. You know, but we we always stay true to true to ourselves, no matter what kind of music that we are playing. So when something like this comes along, where we have no control over it, but yet we want to still try to keep bettering ourselves as musicians we have to really take a look inwards and, and and really think about what that means like okay i'm very i'm very very lucky i i, I have a beautiful home and, and a nice community i i go for walks in the woods right around my house i live near the ocean i can go for a walk on the ocean you know to let to let myself breathe so to speak uh i have a beautiful um I have beautiful, my piano, like I talked about before, my Hammond here, and a couple other electric pianos. I have an old Wurlitzer. Um, so I can do what I do. I, I, I do musically. Having said that, I, mi I miss being around other musicians. I miss being around people that I talk to. I'm a pretty personable guy. I love being, uh, when I'm at a gig, talking to everybody, you know, having having fun having a drink with somebody you know and uh, I, I i like that and i miss that so 
we all have to really think what the next year is going to be for us. Because even though, I, as I said, I just I see some of my friends, especially in Florida, starting to play a little bit. I still think it's going to be about a year before any of us really start playing a lot meaningful and stuff, you know, when the clubs, when people really start feeling comfortable, not just the musicians, but the people that either go to the clubs or uh, the festivals. Um, I just read uh, yesterday that the, the Moulin Blues Festival, which I played in uh, uh, many times in Europe, that just got canceled already for this year. I forget if it's in April or I think it's in April. So, mm. you know, um, most of the festivals that I was booked for by myself and I was booked with uh, the Proven Ones all have said, well, we want the exact same lineup for uh, for 2021. Well, here's an example already of one major festival um, being canceled. And and that always always has like ripple effects because usually when you play a, a play a festival like, like Moulin Blues, that's like what we call the anchor date. Then you can right. stay out for for another week and play some really nice clubs, you know, and get your you know play play to to more people and stuff, you know. But if you don't have that anchor date, you can't really fly to Europe to do mostly club dates, you know. Has your writing changed? My, I think my writing's a little bit deeper. Someone said my writing might be a little darker these days, yeah. um, but I think I still uh, try to project a positive uh, image in, in my writing because to me. Um, if you if you've listened to any of my, uh, my my recordings, my songs aren't that long three four minute songs. What I you know because I I, I I listen to like when I listen to like a lot of the old blues blues recordings and stuff. You know one of my favorites is like like lightning slim and stuff. You know and then when mm -hmm. I when I listen to those songs, I close my eyes and I can get like a a real visual of what they're talking about. And I don't mean to. Uh, sound like you know just talking about like cotton fields and things like that but when you when you hear their songs if you really listen to the lyrics it's storytelling within a 12 bar within a 12 bar format so to speak and that's what i that's what i like i like that's how i like to do my writing so if someone listens to my songs and actually listens to the lyrics maybe close their eyes and actually listens to the lyrics in their song i'm trying to tell a story i'm not just trying to to, to rhyme moon and june and things like that rhyme is good but i think the storytelling within a song is the most important part anthony i, I want to thank you for doing this uh, my final question to you do you have a philosophy to to the way you approach music well i think i think the philosophy is bigger than just music it's try to be kind try to always do the best you can try to help people and Play your ass off when you're on stage. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you being part of the series. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I, I wish you and everybody that hear, hears this all the best in 2021.